Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome everyone, you're on the Paradigm Shift, Fridays at noon on 4ZZZ Community Radio. This is Ian, your anchor for today's show. The show is about civil disobedience and the reporter is Andy, who is interviewing Piero Moraro, who's an academic who's looked into the question of why do we have to obey the law. Later in the show, we'll hear from the Julian Assange campaign, trying to get him to Australia. And we'll be doing an interview with Kieran O'Reilly, who's a long-term campaigner for peace and also for Julian Assange. And another person who's pretty familiar with civil disobedience, John Ricketson. So let's get into the show and have a listen to this song, Have You Been to, to Jail for Justice? Was it Cesar Chavez? Maybe it was Dorothy Day. Some will say Dr. King or Gandhi set them on their way. No matter who your mentors are, it's pretty plain to see. If you've been to jail for justice, you're in good company. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand. Sitting in and lying down, always to take a stand. Have you sung a song for freedom or marched that picket line? Have you been to jail for justice? Oh, you're a friend of mine. You law-abiding citizens, listen to this song. Laws were made by people, and people can be wrong. Once unions were against the law, but slavery was fine. Women were denied the vote, and children worked the mine. The more you study history, the less you can deny it. A rotten law stays on the books till folks with guts defy it. Have you been to jail for justice? I want to shake your hand Sitting in and lying down Always to take a stand Have you sung a song for freedom Or marched that picket line Have you been to jail for justice Oh, you're a friend of mine Now the law's supposed to serve us And so are the police When that system fails It's up to us to speak our peace Takes eternal vigilance for justice to prevail. So get courage from your convictions. Let them haul you off to jail. 
that picket line Have you been to jail for justice? Will you go to jail for justice? Have you been to jail for justice? Oh, you're a friend of mine We now have Andy interviewing Pierre Moraro about civil disobedience. And then following that, we'll have Ruby Thorborn with Extreme Behaviour. And then following the next Piero Moraro interlude, we'll have Feraliza, Like It or Not, then Mauro Piero, and then the famous Lurkers with their Galilee song. And then after that, we'll have the last part of Pierre Moraro and will be followed by John Rickardson, and then John Butler, How You Sleep at Night, followed by Kieran O'Reilly about Julian Assange. And then we have an amazing song premiered on 4ZZZ. It's the BLF's When Our Turn Comes. Could you start off by introducing yourself? Uh, so my name is Piero Moraro. I am a lecturer at the Centre for Law and Justice at Charles Sturge University. I teach criminal justice and teach ethics. Uh, indigenous rights and uh, human rights more broadly. And you have written a book on the philosophy of civil disobedience. What inspired you to write this book? So it's one of the topics I've been researching uh, for quite a long time. My background is in philosophy, um, so I'm interested in all the questions that surround uh, the rule of law from a moral perspective. So you know, why should we obey the law? Why should we punish prisoners if we should at all? And how should we punish them? And so with civil disobedience, uh, I think my main interest was trying to understand what it is that makes an act of disobedience, which we normally tend to think of as wrong, um, civil. So what does the word civil add to the notion of disobedience? And the goal was really to try to distinguish civil from uncivil forms of disobedience. Um, civil disobedience is something which comes up often in uh, the media nowadays, and uh, you know, all the protests that are occurring right now in Australia, for example. Politicians often say that a democratic society should allow for the right to protest, but shouldn't allow for uncivil disobedience. And then for some reasons, whenever people engage in any kind of protest, it's labeled uncivil, and then the government steps in, brings in new laws to punish the protesters. And so really the book aims to clarify what is the difference between civil and uncivil disobedience, and how the state should deal with people who engage in civil forms of protest. So they still break the law, but they do it in a way that displays their civility, even if they're acting illegally. So how have you defined civil disobedience? I look at the literature on civil disobedience. The literature really um, starts in the 1970s after the publication of this book by John Rawls called A Theory of Justice. That's when philosophers really started to engage with um, the problem of civil disobedience. And um, what they did at the time, they tried to give some criteria that an action should fulfill in order to uh, qualify as civil disobedience. And these criteria were, first, it must be non-violent, uh, second, it must be done publicly, so you must know who the persons engaging in the protest are, so you cannot like cover your face or hide your identity, and third, the protesters must accept 
the punishment. This was the standard idea of civil disobedience. But in the book, I show that this is a very old and not really a realist account of what being a civil disobedience is. And I rather focus on the disposition of the person who engages in the act of protest. And so I say, what makes an action civil is your disposition to treat others with respect. Now, the paradox here is that you might disobey the law. So, for example, you might occupy a public space, block traffic, cause some kind of disruption. But that might still be a way to treat others with respect. And the way I explain this in my book is that if we think of civil disobedience as a form of political address, a way to address others within the political arena, sometimes you might have to force other people to listen to you by, for example, causing a significant disruption to traffic or um, in occupying the pub uh, public space in the way we see, for example, in, uh, in Melbourne recently or in Sydney or in Brisbane. But your goal in doing that is not to force people to accept your view, but is to force people to listen to you. And then once they've heard your view, uh, listen to your opinion, and it's very hard, for example, for climate change activists to have a voice nowadays on public media, which tend to be pretty skewed uh, in support of the government. So as long as you engage in an action that seeks to address other people in the political arena and to persuade them that your view is worth more attention, then your action is still civil. So what's happening, for example, right now with Extinction Rebellion, at least some of those instances would qualify as civil disobedience because the protesters are forcing the government to face the issue. They want the government to, to, to acknowledge the concern and to take action on that. But that is different from terrorists putting bombs in a building to try to coerce the government to accept their view without further debate. You mentioned uh, the 1970s and John Rawls. The term civil disobedience is often attributed to Henry David Thoreau, who wrote an essay of that name in 1849. But the, the idea of a moral duty to break unjust laws, this is something that goes a long way back in philosophy, and you could even say that this is a, a kind of intrinsic human value. Yeah, so the, the Thoreau thing, I actually talk about it in the book. It seems to me Thoreau is often, as you mentioned, cited as the father of the concept of civil disobedience. But he actually never uses that that word in um, in his um, in his writing. Even the essay you mentioned, he didn't. He was, it, there was a lecture that he gave, and then it was later published with the title Civil Disobedience. So we tend to associate it with um, Thoreau, but he's not really the typical example of a civil disobedience. What he did, which was much more alike to an anarchist resistance to an unjust government. But um, the, the idea of resisting, nonetheless, an unjust government of disobeying unjust laws, as you correctly mentioned, has a long pedigree in our history. Socrates talked about that in one of his dialogues in the Crito, which we often teach our first year philosophy students. Uh, in Greek tragedies, for example, uh, Sophocles talks about the story of um, Antigone, who disobeys the laws that she thinks are unjust. So it is certainly the idea, an idea that is a part of our history. And I think it's an important value um, which philosophers often try to um, stress, 
the fact that something is a law is not the end of the discussion. There might be other reasons why citizens should obey laws when these laws are unjust, for example, or when these laws are not produced through a democratic process. So some people are excluded by the consultation. There may be a reason also for objecting to the law. And I think one of the main points in my book is that sometimes it is civil to disobey the law exactly because as citizens, we have a duty to object to action, to legislation, which doesn't fulfill certain requirements. Let me tell you about extreme behaviour. It starts with silence. Extreme behaviour starts with mouths stuffed by corporate cloth and hands bound by bullies behind backs. Blindfolds of bills that cut skin with their plastic coats and the companies think they win when they destroy our only home. They destroy their only home, our only home. Extreme behaviour is slitting the land's throat with the serrated edge of a knife and licking it clean, mistaking blood for honey. Extreme behaviour is burying the history of this land birthed by massacres, drilling metal spirals into the ground, sucking lifeblood like a body bathed in leeches. Extreme behaviour is blind men performing open heart surgery behind big bulldozers. We butcher the giver of our own lives and kill ourselves unconsciously in the name of jobs and growth, economic prosperity and the rise of the individual momentarily. Extreme behaviour is a billion dollar industry buying voices, its governmental policies and laws designed to silence people, protecting life on earth, strategic social control, extreme behaviour starts with silence and it ends with the sounds of civil resistance. One of the distinctions, I think you mentioned it with Thoreau, that his is really about an individual act of conscience and not uh, not paying war taxes for a war he disagreed with. But that's very different to a later theory developed by, say, Gandhi or Martin Luther King or Gene Sharp of a, a political tactic of civil disobedience. Are these both parts of the spectrum of what this term encompasses? Yeah, so I think this goes back to the point I mentioned before, that Thoreau wasn't really a civil disobedience. He wasn't so much interested in engaging the government in a political exchange. He just thought, you know, this government is doing uh, horrible things, you know, waging unjust wars, I don't want to be part of it. And so he was arguing, you know, about the value of the individual retreating in the bush without having to deal with the bureaucracy and with society. So going to the other cases you mentioned, Gandhi, for example, Martin Luther King, their examples are very interesting because, for example, Gandhi and, and King as well, they engaged in boycotts. Now, boycotts are not typically an example of a persuasive form of action. When people engage in boycotts, they want to coerce the other party to surrender. Um, and that's why, for example, the government right now is so worried about people wanting to boycott the mining industry, wanting to divest, because that really is, you know, is a, mass, is a biggest threat you can wage against um, the capitalist government, uh, withdraw funds from their profits. And so boycotts are not really a form of persuasive action. But nonetheless, we tend to think of Gandhi and Martin Luther King as the examples of the civil disobedience. 
because their campaigns were non-violent. But I think analyzing all these cases which we tend to associate with civil disobedience shows that there is lots of unclarity surrounding the notion of civil disobedience. And in, in the book, I argue that actually Gandhi and Martin Luther King were doing something else than what we tend to think of as civil disobedience. They weren't so much interested in engaging the racist government into a rational discourse in order to persuade them that racism is wrong. They actually wanted racism to stop. They wanted black people to have the same rights. They wanted Indians to be free from um, colonization. Um, what with civil disobedience, we normally tend to think, and again, John Rawls wrote about this, there is a form of protest that fits societies that tend to be more advanced in terms of democratic rights. So we might think that Australia is a better candidate than the US in the 1950s or that India during um, um, British imperialism because we, we have gone a long way in terms of acknowledging um, the equality of everyone regardless of race, gender and religion. Of course, the facts are different. We know that prisons are full of indigenous people, but at least the laws have advanced, the, the aspirations have advanced. So. Um, the cases of Gandhi um, and King and um, Jane Sharp as well, he was interested in forms of non-cooperation that would tend to coerce the government um, to accept the views of the protesters, even if the means weren't um, violent in the way in which we tend to think of violence. So, you know, I might coerce you to do what I want by pointing a gun at your head, or I might coerce you to do what I want by stopping buying your product. Now, both these actions are coercive, but one is violent and one is non-violent. And in the book, I draw this distinction that we should focus on coercion rather than on violence per se, in order to understand what makes an action violent, sorry, what makes an action of disobedience civil rather than uncivil. There's a distinction here between, say, a, a philosophical attachment to non-violence and a, a pragmatic uh, use of nonviolence when violence is not an option for, say, an oppressed people against a government which has a, a monopoly on violence, um, trying to find other forms of power. That's also what we might call nonviolent direct action, but those people aren't necessarily attached to any philosophical idea of nonviolence. Yeah, so direct action, and again, this gets into the, the nitty gritty of the book, so sometimes it can be more of a philosophical discussion than anything else. But direct action is sometimes distinguished from civil disobedience because direct action, uh, and I think the cases of Gandhi and, um, and Martin Luther King is, again, more an example of um, direct action. Uh, it is not very concerned with the, the dialogical aspect, so it is not about you know, trying to convince the government that this issue deserves more discussion and that this issue should be taken more seriously. But direct action is really about forcing the government to change its policies, but it's done through ways that are not usually the, the, you know, the traditional violent forms of protest. Um, so the direct action, the distinction between direct action and civil disobedience focuses on this desire to, to establish a dialogue. And that, that's why people sometimes think that civil disobedience is really of no political use whatsoever. It's a symbolic thing that doesn't really make any difference unless the government is put in a corner and you know faced with international pressure, with withdrawal funds, with uh, you know bad PR campaigns. Uh, you know the government is not going to sit down and acknowledge that 
the, the argument, for example, for abandoning the coal industry is rationally superior to the argument for keeping the coal industry um, as the main source of investment. So in the book, I don't deal with the merits or the demerits of choosing either strategy, but I just try to highlight that a civil disobedient is one that wants to engage in uh, an exchange with the government. But I also say that it doesn't mean that we must be civil. You know, even if it turns out that direct action is coercive and therefore doesn't fit my account of civil disobedience, it doesn't mean that those who engage in direct action are doing the wrong thing. There may be many cases where we should be uncivil, namely that we should forsake the attempt to persuade others and tend to coerce them. An example that I give is that if there is a woman who is being sexually assaulted next to me, I certainly don't have any duty to go to the man and try to engage him in a rational exchange so that he understands the wrongness of sexual assault. I should just use force to make him stop that assault. And so it might be that most cases that we are witnessing nowadays are cases where citizens maybe have tried the persuasive forms of protest, but given how much is at stake, maybe forms of direct actions, forms of uncivil protest, and the question here is how do we draw the line with how much incivility is permissible? How have things been going, mate? How is your day? Crew of trusty activists, block my fucking train.
information when the experts are ignored How dare you steal our future How dare you steal our childhood Fairy tales of eternal economic growth Millions of kids saying we've had enough Change is coming if you like it or not of civil disobedience um, and our acceptance of its validity changed over time? Uh, well, I think I mentioned, I mentioned this in, uh, in previous comments and I talked about this in the book. If we look at the philosophical discussion, yes, it's changed a lot. Now there is much less concern with uh, the specific requirements. So the Rawlsian model has been widely criticized and now philosophers tend to focus more on dispositions of the agent. So I mentioned communicativeness before, the attempt to communicate with others, and also conscientiousness. You know, you must do the action because you are you have a deep and sincere belief that there is an injustice at stake. So if I engage in a campaign because I want to be paid more, um, that might not be an action of civil disobedience. The action might not be based on an issue of justice, but might just be concerned with my own self-interest. But of course, you might have cases where you know, the, the employers think that as a category, they're not being paid in a fair way, and so their action might fulfill the requirement of civil disobedience. But certainly the, the shift in the philosophical debate has been from focusing on the specific characteristic of the action to focusing on the specific characteristics of the agent, and that's what I do in my book to a large extent. We're seeing uh, mass movements of civil disobedience around the world now. Um, in Australia, we've seen things regarding climate change and animal rights this year, but uh, in other places as well. Is our view of civil disobedience changing now in our current unique circumstances? Well, it depends what you mean by our views of civil disobedience. I think it's, it's there is clearly a generational divide, and I think Australia is a very is a very interesting case. I came from Europe originally, and I think in Europe we we've always had 
social movement as an element of our life. While in Australia, I think it's a very recent, it's a very recent phenomenon. And so I think, especially the older generations, are not used to seeing people protesting. I, I'm sure you've heard the expression of the quiet Australians now. So the idea is that if you don't protest, there's something good because you are the quiet Australian who's been disturbed by all these people protesting. So I think what we're seeing in Australia now is really a generational shift. And of course, I'm not saying that young people protest and old people don't protest, but clearly young people now are more attuned to the role of social protest in order to have a voice, in order to have access to services, which, you know, if you are in your early 20s, it's much harder for you to access a stable job, not to mention buying a house. So I think people now are understanding that politics is much more than just going to the polls, casting your vote, and then sitting down quietly, waiting for the next election. People now, especially young people through social media and through various examples worldwide, are understanding that politics requires taking action, even between elections, because you cannot trust the politicians who always work for the, power, for the public interest. And so I think it's an interesting shift that we're seeing in this country, and I don't think it is a coincidence that the governments now are so quickly introducing legislation to prevent people from engaging in protests, because the governments now are seeing that people don't want to see it quietly, and let the government do whatever it is they want to do. And so all this new legislation, I think, reveals a concern that people might actually be understanding that political power involves, it's a daily, it's a daily exercise. It's not just happens every three years when we have an election. It's funny to hear you say that as a European about Australia, because as somebody who's grown up here, I mean, I think Australia has a a very strong history of political activism that's helped to form this country into what it is. But I do think you're right in that there's not the same social acceptance on a mainstream level at the moment, at least, of that. And I think we've had a lot of, in the last few decades, a lot of uh, conservative governments. And I think that's really played a role in shaping that culture. I agree. And I, I should say, you know, when I, when I say that Australia has a I think I was concerned more in terms of duration than of intensity of Australian history. You know, of course, indigenous movements, for example, um, played a key role in, uh, you know, leading to the 1967 referendum. Uh, you know, there was a massive protest against the war in Iraq. So I don't want to say that Australians have not engaged in protest, but I'm just saying that I think also given the, the, the logistic of this country, how big it is and how low the density levels are, um, maybe this, this protest, you know, had less impact than you know, they might have in a country like Italy or in a country like the UK, in which density is, uh, is so hard. Union movements, of course, you know, they, they've been crucial in the 19th century in Europe. Uh, we had political terrorism, unfortunately, in, uh, in my country, in many countries in Europe. So I think, you know, I think political disorders are more of a norm uh, historically in Europe than they are in Australia. But I'm not saying that Australians, you know, lie, as you mentioned that, Australia has a rich history. It's just, I think, it's fair to say it's a shorter history. And that's why, especially the older generations, might not think of that as an element of life. They might think it was a one-off incident. The media, of course, didn't report as much uh, as they do now on these incidents. And so um, the social acceptance that we mentioned before might be uh, different. But, you know, you see the same, the same is happening in Europe. You know, governments have been legislating against protests in exactly the same way in the UK, for example, in the past 10, 15 years. So, um, and not to mention in the US. So, 
Australia is catching up. Rich people, they got a plan to teach the big bad minds. Gotta stop them if we can, but can we? <gasps> Together we can. I got me some chains, got me some friends Gonna lock on to defend this little hole Third rock from the sun Everyone gonna block that line Galilee gonna block that line up to Galilee Gonna block that line up to Galilee Oh, I'm gonna block that line up to Galilee We're gonna block that line up to Galilee We're gonna block that line up to Galilee You're a big fat joke, your big old plans ain't got no hope. We're gonna block that line up to Galilee. Mm, Mr. Adon, I got news for you. Your cold train won't be getting through. We're gonna block that line up to Galilee. I did mention before, uh, in Australia, hundreds of people arrested this year in civil disobedience actions, but around the world we've seen really massive movements this year, dictatorships overthrown in Sudan and Algeria, in Hong Kong, people resisting authoritarian government, and most recently in South America, mass uh, popular movements. Can we point to a, a common cause that's influencing this around the world at the moment? When you think about examples, um what happened, you know, in, in Northern Africa, which, you know, the, the what's it called, the, 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 the Arab Spring, uh, which started in Tunisia and then expanded in other countries, Egypt. Um, I think social media clearly now play a role. People now can see that, um, you know, it is not, 
it's not normal to live with a dictatorship. They can see that when there is a rebellion somewhere, that kind of sets an example for them that it is possible to change. It's possible to free oneself from unjust, unjust regimes. So I think really social media have changed the narrative around social protest. Um, they it made it easier for people to organize, uh, made it easier for people to share evidence of what's happening. Um, it made it a bit harder for governments to police these actions, though, of course, um, we know that now every other day there is a bill on allowing ASIO to monitor uh, you know, online activities of people, and uh, this is done in the interest of fighting terrorism, but then what we see is that these laws are used more and more to police protesters, to police whistleblowers, and not really to police terrorism. But I think, in my view, it really, um, it must change is the means that people have. People have always craved for justice and for uh, having a decent life, but now through social media, they can they can organize and they can communicate and they can feel part of a global movement. Um, and so this is somewhat empowering for them. Unfortunately, these movements haven't led to the results that we hoped for. Uh, Tunisia, Egypt, uh, Hong Kong, um, protesters haven't gone, um, haven't achieved the results they were hoping for. But, you know, the, the Gandhi's movement, the civil rights movement, didn't happen overnight, took 20 plus years. So I think these are positive developments, even if they don't bring the results that we hope. We did talk about a distinction between a, a philosophical idea of civil disobedience and then the pragmatic sort of political movement. But do you think that philosophy has something to contribute to these kind of social movements we're seeing around the world? Oh yes, of course. I, would, I wouldn't be working in this field if I, I thought that um, there wasn't value to it. I think it's very important to, to remind people of what it is that we're talking about. Everyone seems to like civil disobedience, but then no one seems, or a lot of people don't like, for example, um, the extinct rebellion movement. And so it's very important to remind people that if you like civil disobedience, it's because you like certain values. And what the movements like the Extinction Rebellion, at least in its core and fashion, what these movements are doing is upholding exactly, exactly those same values. So what seems to be just an abstract discussion about philosophy is really going to the core of our own values. Even when you talk to people about, for example, democracy in general, I've tried a couple of times to suggest that maybe giving equal voting rights to everyone um, might not be the most just system. We should think of other systems. And people get very angry, and, and rightly so with me. But when I ask them why they get so angry, they give me different answers. They say, well, because everyone is equal. Because every, everyone should count the same. Everyone should count for one and no more than one. And these are philosophical ideas to which people turn when they try to justify the justice of a certain system. And whether or not they are right in using those ideas with reference to those specific situations, this shows us that we do use philosophical concepts every day in our discussion, whenever we think of an injustice, when we think that it is unjust, that people uh, are not paid enough, even when people complain that it is not just that they tax so much on their properties, these all philosophical arguments that people are using, and of course, they are they are characterized by disagreement, but they also show that in every in our everyday life, we do use 
philosophical arguments, even if we don't realize them. So I get very angry when the government says that research grants for philosophy are a waste of money because they're actually fundamental in order to design a policy. You cannot achieve just results if you first don't identify what justice requires. Okay, thanks, Piero. Is there anything else you wanted to leave us with? Oh, no, look, thanks for your time. And, uh, you know, I really admire what you guys are doing up there in Queensland. And, uh, and I think I was really thinking of you guys while I was writing my book. Julian Assange dies in prison cell. This is a headline that I'm sure you do not wish to read in the near or distant future. It is a headline that you have it within your power to prevent from becoming a tragic reality. I speak from experience. As a journalist, filmmaker, I spent 15 months in a Cambodian prison on espionage charges that the Australian government knew to be politically motivated. Then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull intervened on my behalf to secure my release. You can pick up the phone, Mr Morrison and speak with whoever the United Kingdom's next Prime Minister is, requesting that Assange not be extradited to the United States to face the very real possibility, if not the certainty, that he will die in prison. Would you approve the extradition of an Australian citizen to China or Saudi Arabia under the circumstances that prevail in Assange's case? If Assange does die in prison, will you, with a clear Christian conscience, be able to inform the Australian public, in all honesty, that you did all within your power and more to protect Assange's legal and human rights?
I'd like to introduce an event that is coming up at Kirilpa Hall. It's Justice for Julian. There will be a uh, forum with Mr. John Shipton, who is the father of Julian Assange, an international campaigner for justice and press freedom. It'll be on the 11th of December at 7pm to 9pm. Tickets are $10. It's brought to you by the Help Bring Julian Home group and the profits are to free Julian Assange. So you can rock up on the day and listen to the organisers uh, try to get, get this campaign mounted. Julian uh, has now been in prison since April and he was sentenced to nearly the maximum for breach of bail and it was a bail that had no charge attached to it. Um, and uh, an inquiry in Sweden that had, had la that lapsed and, and they dropped and now he's back to being a remand prisoner. But he's in a Category A prison, which is a maximum security prison in England. Prisons designed to isolate, to demoralise and defeat uh, any political resistor. And Belmarsh is a history of housing Irish Republicans and, and Muslim prisoners. But how they're treating Julian within the prison is they're taking him out of general population where he was for the first month or so, where he was functioning quite well. And they put him in isolation in the medical wing, where he's locked down 22 hours a day. And when they do move him, they have what's called a controlled move, where he doesn't, they lock down everyone on his path or move everyone from his path. So he doesn't even get spontaneous interactions uh, with other prisoners. This is all a considered premeditated attack on his mental and physical health. Um, he's someone who's been detained without charge for six or seven years previously in the Ecuadorian embassy. He has been denied sunlight and you know, any contact with nature for six or seven years. And now he's even in a worse situation. I know from my own experience of spending two years in a variety of prisons, including maximum security prisons uh, in Australia and, and Ireland and the States, is that... The only anti-venom you have to surviving and thriving in a prison situation is your own spirituality or your own sense of self and uh, the, the meaning. And I think Julian understands what, the significance of what he has done and, and how he has upset the American empire and revealed its murders and crimes. So your own subjective spirituality and also the solidarity of others. And I know from actually being with Julian in the embassy, when he's opened uh, correspondence and support letters uh, from across the world, how uh, that nourished him, you know. I've seen that, I've witnessed that. So I'd encourage people to write to him. You know, the, what, what the prisoner wants to hear is, uh, obviously, actions you've taken in solidarity with them on the outside, but also about, about your life and um, your experience, and especially that Julian uh, is from Australia, a country he, he may never see again country that grew up and in and grew, informed him uh, the significance of writing from Australia, from especially from northern New South Wales and Melbourne, where he spent many years, is very, very significant, I think, to write to him. Uh, I know that that was a big highlight of my day when I was in prison in Texas, uh, was mail call, and uh, it also informs the other prisoners and staff that he's not an isolated figure, that he has support, and I know... My first month in Texas, I was getting assaulted and and bullied and harassed. And uh, as soon as all that correspondence started coming in, 
they gave me a certain status in the prison and 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 made it a lot safer for me as well as hearing from from uh, people on the outside continuing the struggles for peace and justice which had brought me to the jail that's all for paradigm shift this week see ya and now we have this amazing premiere of the blfs when our turn comes What if your boss said you're going to work to tear up the planet because you're fucking berserk? What if your boss said to knock down the trees to bomb civilians and then spread the disease? Would you say, fuck that, I'm not going to work and rock the foundations of the capital works? Or would you just recede and proceed to wait with your shoulder burdened from the pain and the weight? Back in the 70s on the east coast, builders, laborers were like burning toast in the kitchen of the fucking elite. Vietnam protest every two weeks, shit hit the fan that was getting deep. A wolf was the system and the people were sheep. Trade unions were busting a move in defense of the right of the people to groove to their own tune. And I mean that funk, not the half-baked cooked up conveyor of junk. Fair pay and not dying at work. 36 hours a week on their turf Falling off the towers or getting buried in cement These were the things a weak union meant So you can be damn sure they wanted every cent Of the enterprise bargain worked out in the tent And when A.V. Jennings wanted Kelly's bush They told him to shove it and get fucked off the books And despite the bad press and the filthy looks They decided they'd still try to battle the crooks They battled the crooks, they battled the crooks, the BLF, they battled the crooks, they battled the crooks, they battled the crooks, the BLF, they battled the crooks, they battled the crooks, they battled the crooks, the BLF, they battled the crooks, that's the BLF, green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man, yeah, the BLF, green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man, yeah, the BLF, green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man, yeah, the BLF, green bands, that's the way to take on the System. Trade unions busted a move. The work bans spread all across the city. Forty work sites were barred without pity. Stop the concrete, break the pour, hold up the project till you give us some more. More pay, more safety gear and meal time. And pay the migrants the same, your shit slime. Women on the job and as the union leaders. Cut gender stereotypes like meat cleavers. Black band actions to save the block. Pink bands telling homophobes to back off. Green bands to protect the parks and to save big markets for the working class. Three billion dollars worth of shit on hold and that's no mean feat in the era of Cold War. Anti-communist fear that the Soviets weren't calling the shots here. Genuine revolutionary action. Not just slogans but lots of traction. Grassroots union rank of fall. The BL's going that extra mark. That's the BLF. Green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man. The BLF. Green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man. Yeah, the BLF. Green bands, that's the way to take on the system. The BLF. Green bands, that's the way to take on the system. 
Trade unions busting a move. The ABCC is a Gestapo. They never ever want it to happen again, you know. Green bands fucking the system up. The capital elite want to keep the corrupt. See how it made these Nazi cops to go to work sites and lock down the block. They rebadged it under labour. You could change your name, but it's still the same in your decimator. Tony Abbott bought the old name back. Put the head kickers in and now they're on the attack. 40 grand if you go on strike and no right to silence if they ask you questions like You want to rat on your mates and cause strife when a Spanish inquisition in your personal life? Fuck that, Gestapo have got to go The real criminals are the CEOs telling the libs and the ALP what to do Like when they ban the BLF, true, yeah, true lies, the ALP kind They're just another liberal party in my mind Real right to work, you gotta scrap the system Wherever you work, you gotta join your union Tell them to snap into action And if they don't, you need to sack them Voting a new generation Work band strikes and industrial action Give the corporations a complication Give the corporations a complication The big LF Green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man The big LF Green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man The big LF Green bins, that's the way to take on the system. The big LF. Green bins, that's the way to take on the system. Just imagine green bins in coal-fired power stations causing blackouts across the nation to coincide with the climate rallies, shutting shit down from the city to the valley. No coal going out of the ports because the miners and the wharfies have got other thoughts. BLF. Green bins, we got to do it again for climate action, man. The big LF. Green bins, that's the way to take on the system, man. The big LF. Green bins, that's the way to take on the system. The big LF. Green bins, that's the way to take on the system, man. The big LF. 